0: And if you're a visitor, we greet you. Hope you come back. Uh, this is Gabrielle Cusa. She's a student at Criswell College. Stand up just for a second. Don't you look at the beautiful hair that Gabrielle has? <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely amazing. And uh, I really like Gabrielle because she began to sat in, sit in on one of my classes. She was not registered for my class, but she sat in on my class. And I thought, boy, I must really be a good teacher, But I've discovered that there was a young man in the class. <laughs>
1: that's <laughs> not the truth, is it? <laughs> That's good.
0: Don, I was thinking, is, uh, where, where is Don over here? Don picked out the song only Believe. I was uh, looking on my wall. If you come into my office at Criswell College, I have on one full wall pictures of great evangelists of the past. And one of the evangelists I have up there is the evangelist Paul Rader, who lived back in the 1920s, 1930s era, and was the greatest evangelist in America between Billy Sunday and Billy Graham. You would say, well, who was between them? Well, Paul Rader was between them. He would go all around and preach evangelistic crusades to thousands of people. He ended up pastoring Moody Church in Chicago, and then left there and became the pastor, started a church called the Gospel Tabernacle, and the whole purpose was just to preach the gospel. Thousands of people came to Christ. He used to be an ex-boxer. His father was a pastor, and uh, he moved away from the Lord, became a boxer, became a drunk, and uh, eventually just moved to New York City, uh, sort of lived on Skid Row, and was in one of these (coughs) flop houses, as they used to call them. Who remembers what a flop house is? Let's see. I mean, it's, it shows you how old you are. If you don't know what a flop house is, it's a place where you don't want to live. <laughs> and uh, he struggled with the Lord, and he, he was radically saved. And he took up his pen, and he wrote, only believe. So it's a very interesting story. Well, we've been looking at this issue of belief and faith, and Jesus tells us what real faith is. He says real faith is not just making an initial commitment, it's persevering on with the Lord. And today we are in Luke chapter 9. So take your Bibles and let's look at Luke chapter 9. And we're going to begin at verse 18. Luke 9, 18. Now last week we learned some lessons about faith and about hospitality. Remember he sent the 12 out told them to go out on faith and trust people to give them hospitality. Later on, we discover that they didn't give hospitality when Jesus required it of them. So we learned a couple lessons about faith and hospitality based on the fact that he sent out the twelve and then he fed the five thousand. Now we come to the next scene, which is verse 18. It says, And it happened as he was alone praying. Notice that phrase, As he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him. So he gets off in a quiet place. This is something he tried to do last week. Remember, he tried to get away to pray, but the crowds came and they found him. And so he fed the 5,000. So finally, he's able to get away to pray. And as he is praying, we don't know how long this is going on, his disciples join him, it says in verse 18. And then he asked them a question. He said, Who do the crowds say that I am? He's trying to get a gauge of public opinion. What is their opinion of him? Now the interesting thing is, is that he gets a response in verse 19. It says, And they said, John the Baptist, and some say, You're Elijah. And others say, One of the old prophets has risen again. You're a prophet like the Old Testament prophets. Now what's interesting about this is this is the same answer that was given back in verses 7 through 9 to Herod. Now look back at verses 7 through 9. After Jesus and his disciples do a lot of miracles, Herod is curious about them and he wants to know who they are. And we see that verse 7 says, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because some said that John had risen from the dead. That's John the Baptist. Some said Elijah had appeared, and others said an Old Testament prophet had risen again. Now look back at verse 19. This is what the disciples say to Jesus. John the Baptist, Elijah, or some Old Testament prophet has risen again. So... This is the public consensus of who Jesus is. John the Baptist, Elijah, they believed Elijah would come before the Messiah, according to Malachi and according to Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah. John the Baptist, risen from the dead, Elijah, or one like an Old Testament prophet. That's the public consensus. Now all those are prophets. Some people think that Jesus is a prophet. That's their opinion of him. That's the consensus. Now look at verse 20. And he said to his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, The Christ. Meaning the Messiah of God. The Messiah sent from God. Now that, title, Christ, that's not his name, that's his title, or Messiah, is a political title. It means king. And the Jews believed that God was going to raise up a messianic king who would overthrow Rome and its government and set up his kingdom in its place. So the public consensus is that he's a prophet, but Peter says, no, you're the king who's going to overthrow Rome. That's what he's thinking. You're the Messiah. So he says, you're the Messiah sent from God. Now, how does Peter come to that conclusion? In Matthew, when Matthew deals with this, he gives a lot of explanation. Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well, flesh and blood, what? He's not revealed this to you, but my what? Father. Fathers of heaven. It's a revelation. Luke doesn't say that, but we get the sense that it is a revelation. Why? Because before they arrived, what was Jesus doing? Praying. And he knows he's going to ask a question of them. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he's been praying, and he's been asking God to reveal it to them. And so it's a revelation. So Peter comes up and says, you're the Messiah. That's it. So look at verse 21. And he strictly warned them. Look. He strictly warned them. He strictly commanded them. A warning and a command. What? To tell no one. Don't reveal my identity to anyone. Keep absolutely silent. Do not tell anybody who I am. Why not? Why not? Why is there a warning? And why is there a command? A warning is a warning of danger. If you tell somebody this, it's going to be dangerous.
1: So I'm commanding them not
0: to do it. Why does he warn them to keep quiet about his true identity? Because the Jews don't know who he is. Who do they think he is? It's the prophet. If they discover that he's the Messiah, and their concept of the Messiah is that he's going to do what? Overthrow Rome (laughs) and set up the kingdom of God. What they will do, oh, he's the Messiah? Let's get behind him. They'll proclaim him their king, and it will start a revolution. And that's not God's plan. So he says, keep this silent. Now look at verse 22. <clears throat> saying. You see that word? Saying. Participle. You know what that is? An ING word? That links verse 22 <laughs> with verse 21. Watch this now. He warned them and commanded them to tell no one, saying, he's going to give you his own explanation of why. <clears throat> saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised the third day. Raised up from the dead. So what we have here is that Jesus is explaining why he doesn't want them to tell his, or reveal his true identity. He's explaining them why he wants them to keep quiet. Because Israel... This is not Israel's concept of the Messiah. Israel doesn't have a concept of the Messiah who will die. Messiah doesn't die. Messiah triumphs. Messiah doesn't get defeated. Messiah defeats other people. Messiah doesn't suffer. He causes bad people to suffer. See, so God's plan is different than the people's concept of what the Messiah is supposed to do. And he's explaining this. So he says, you can't let these people know this. They, don't even, they wouldn't even understand any of this. So he says, don't say anything because the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, and be killed, and be raised the third day. So until this happens, listen, until he is killed, and until he is raised from the dead, they are to keep his identity secret. Once he's put to death, and once he's raised, then they can tell everybody. So this is what's known in theological circles as the messianic secret. And there are whole books written on the messianic secret. Why would Jesus want his identity to be kept secret? And it becomes somewhat clear to us that because God's plan and the people's understanding of God's plan is different. Okay? Now let's break down verse 22 a little bit into some sort of manageable parts. First of all, look in verse 22 at that title, Son of man. This is how Jesus identifies himself, which comes right out of the book of Daniel, where in Daniel's vision, he sees the son of man going to heaven and receiving a kingdom. So Jesus identifies himself as the son of man out of the book of Daniel, which is another messianic title. Also look in verse 22. It says he must suffer, be rejected, and be killed. By whom? Look. The elders, number one, that's rich laymen. Rich laymen. These are not ministers. These are just lay people who are very wealthy and they've accumulated their wealth by accumulating property. Rich Jewish laymen who have accumulated property. Now what's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture is that when God gave out property, he gave out equal amounts to everybody. He said, it's not your property, it's my property. I'm going to dish it out this this much here, this much here, this much here. You all have your lot. But of course, there are people who know how to get other people's property. And these elders have accumulated property by maybe selling someone else some goods and they couldn't pay it back, couldn't pay for the goods, they Racked up debt. And this person said, well, if you can't pay your debt, then guess what? I'm getting your property. And that's what's happened. Remember we've talked about the year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee, every 50 years, what happened to all the property? Given back to people. Remember that? So I, won't, I won't go into that again, but you remember that if you've been with us. Well, these people never given, given anything back. So they've accumulated a lot of property. These are the people who are going to kill Jesus. These wealthy businessmen. Okay, now look at who else in verse 22. Chief priest. you know who they are? They are the priestly family that control the temple. And then the scribes. They're seminary professors. People (laughs) like that. (laughs) The theologians. These are the ones who know the law and interpret the law for the people. So these are all religious people. And the elders and the chief priests. That's all the former priests and the present priests, and the scribes make up the council or what we call the Sanhedrin, the religious body for the nation of Israel. Now, this group of people are in power. Rome has taken over Palestine. Palestine, Jerusalem, all the cities are occupied by Roman military troops. They're under <laughs> occupation, just like Iraq's under occupation right now. And guess what happens? Rome comes in and it takes over a country. We can't run the country. We can't run Iraq. We discovered that real quick. So what do you have to do to run a country? You have to go to the key people in that country and get them to collaborate with you. And that's what we have done, isn't it? And that's what Rome has done. And guess who they went to? They say, we need your help to run your country. Now, here's what we'll do we'll let you keep some of your land. We'll let you continue to live in privilege. But you have to do what we want you to do. And so these people right here are compromisers who have collaborated with Rome, the enemy, in order to keep their own positions of power. Sounds very much like the church in Hitler, in uh, the church in Germany, when Hitler took over. There are a lot of religious leaders, and guess what they did? They said, ah, oh, Hitler's not so bad. Why did they say that? Because they wanted to continue getting their salaries. They wanted to continue to hold their positions, their places of respect, and their places of power. And there were some people who didn't do that. Bonhoeffer didn't do that. You've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He didn't do that. There was a lot of them. Martin Niemöller didn't do that. He ended up in prison, like Bonhoeffer ended up in prison. There were others who did, who refused to do that, but most of well, those people did it. And that's what you have right here. And Jesus says, those are the people that are going to kill me. Okay? And then at the end of verse 22, he says, he will be raised the third day. So even though they kill him, and why do they kill him? <coughs> why would they kill him? Because <coughs> he wouldn't get on their side. <coughs> because when Jesus came around, he said, stop being a collaborator with Rome. Stop compromising. Stand for Yahweh and Yahweh alone. You can't serve, I think I heard the pastor say this, you can't serve two masters. Either you'll love the one and hate the other, or you'll hate one and love the other. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Amen. If it be God, serve Him. If it be Hitler, serve Him. That's sort of a paraphrase. If it be Baal, serve Him, isn't it? And so that's what Jesus called these people to do. And they got so angry and they said, we're not going to put up with this anymore. (laughs) Now they tried to get him on their side many times. And he refused to do it. So they put him to death. But then he says, but on the third day, guess what's going to happen? We're going to see who is really on God's side. Whether you're on God's side or whether I'm on God's side. And guess what? God raised him from the dead. And vindicated him. Proving indeed that he is the Messiah. Does that make sense? So that's what you have here. Now look at verse 23. So once once he dies and he's raised, then they can say whatever they want to say. Now look at verse 23. Then he said to them, if anyone desires to come after me, to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So what Jesus is going to do is Jesus is now linking his fate with the fate of his disciples. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, then you're going to have to go to a cross too. See, he links his fate with the fate of his disciples. Now I want you to notice the words in verse 23. Very interesting. If anyone desires to be my disciple, if anyone desires... To come after me. Notice that this is not limited. Just to the apostles. That includes you. So includes all of us. If anyone. You see that? Verse 23. If anyone desires to be my disciple. Or to come after me. Now there are many people who say. I want to follow Jesus. Many people say, I desire to be a disciple. We see them every week walk down the aisle at the church. Guess what they're saying when they walk down. I want to what? Follow Jesus. Now here's, I want to tell you what Jesus would say in the counseling room. I don't know what's being said in the counseling room because I'm not in there. And I'm glad I don't know. I'm going to tell you what Jesus would say. Oh, you came forward this morning? You desire to follow Jesus? Here's the instructions. Look, verse 23. Deny yourself and follow me. See, look in verse 23. Deny yourself, and then the end of verse 23, and follow me. That's what you have to do. When you get into those positions where you have to choose between standing for Christ And what's best for Christ and his kingdom or standing for yourself. Amen. You deny self. You stand for Christ. Now he's putting that in, the, in relationship to, to him. In other words, it's not just, well, I have to deny myself a second car. It's not talking about that kind of... That's how we usually interpret all this. This is, ter- this is interpreted in light of those parables that we <laughs> read about. When, when the temptations come your way and the cares of the world flood in upon your shoulders and you have to make some choices between Christ or this, Christ or that, Christ or the government, Christ or Rome, Christ or whatever the situation is, then you need to deny yourself and you need to put Christ first. So that's basically what he's saying. We could deal with that. You know what the situation would be in your own life when it comes to a decision between Christ or what you want to do. Now, for example, we have an I Believe campaign over in the church right now. Now, the way it's been presented to us, and I will have to say, we will have to take the word of our leaders that this is what they want, and this is what they believe, that God has a mission for this church. (coughs) What our church is trying to do is to reach the uptown and downtown areas (coughs) and put on events that will attract people that would never come into a church service. And to do it, it's going to take X number of dollars. And I say, yeah, but if I do that, then I won't be able to if I give to, Christ, to the church, then I won't be... So guess what? Now I have a choice. Will I deny self? Or will I support Christ? Now there's an example. Now I wasn't planning on saying that. It was just something that came to my mind. There's a, a, an example, but we have many of those examples. So one of the things that Jesus would say if you were in the counseling room is, first of all, when it comes to those times where you have to decide whether you're going to stand for Christ or whether you're going to stand for yourself. That's not always money, it's about other issues as well. <laughs> you need to deny self and stand for Christ. Okay? Now look at the second thing he'd say in verse 23. And then you need to take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, to Luke's audience, what would that mean to take up your cross? Well, it mean to put a crossbar over your shoulders and carry it from the place that you were sentenced to die to the location of the crucifixion. That's what it means to carry a crossbar. You pick it up and the Rome puts it right on your shoulders and you carry it from the point where you were sentenced to the point of crucifixion and then they nail that crossbar to a vertical bar and you die. So that's what this, this means death. This means that we are to count ourselves dead, daily. If you want to be a disciple of Christ, you have to say you are dead already. Now, what does this mean? Well, this means, for example, in situations where you have some choices. Well, if you start witnessing here during the lunchtime at work, you're going to lose your job. It's going to cost you something. It could cost you your job, it could cost you finances, it could cost you reputation, it could cost you friends. In some countries, it costs you your life. So in those situations where there's a cost involved, then we need to be willing to carry the cross on a daily basis. We need to be willing to die. So this shows you that Darwin is wrong. Remember Darwin's theory? It was called the survival of the fittest. Look out for number one. I don't care who else gets fired. It's not going to be me. So look out for number one and the ones who are the fittest and the strongest and the shrewdest and the wisest, and we will succeed. Look out for number one. Jesus says, no, you don't look out for number one. You must be willing at times to lay down your life for the cause of Christ. Because the cause of Christ might cost you your life. Now, the great thing about this is, it cost Jesus his life. This is why he's relating it to What happened to him? It cost him his life. But what happened three days later? He was raised from the dead. So it was only a temporary death. They thought they had been finished with him, and that was it. But three days later, God raised him from the dead, showing that Christ won not death. And since they couldn't kill him again, he won forever. So we are to put our... (coughs) All of our energy and all of our desires on the side of Christ. Now look what he says. And and follow me, which means to continue, to persevere. Don't just stop. Don't just say I'm going to follow. Not just walk forward on a Sunday morning, but actually follow through. Be faithful for your entire life. Now look at verse 24. And notice that it starts with the word for. For, this is an explanation or a reason a reason we're to do this. A reason that this is the price that we should, the cost that we should count up front. He says, because whoever desires to save his life will what? Lose it. In the long run, you might save it temporarily, you might save your job right now, but in the long run, you're going to lose your life. It's going to be a very poor choice. But whosoever loses his life. Now watch this. For my sake, for my sake, will save it. So you might end up saying, "Okay, well, I don't." I'll give you an example. Um, this is something I was thinking of in the car today. When Lynn and I were first married, she was an operating room nurse. Okay, and the hospital. Where she was working began to perform abortions. Okay, now this is not a statement. This is not a social statement. Just me telling you what happened. And uh, she struggled with this like, Should I be involved in performing abortions in the operating room? And we talked about it, and she finally came to the conclusion: she said, No. She said, "As a Christian, I just don't feel that I can kill a baby, be part of that." And so she said, "I'm going to go tell the head of nurse nursing." don't schedule me, I can't, I'm not going to do this, so don't schedule me on any abortion. And she says, now I know, I may end up losing my job. But she had determined up front that if she lost her job, so what? So she did it. And guess what? In this particular case, all they did was switch her. She never had to participate in any of that. So there is an example of how you just take a stand knowing that it could cost you something. Now, let's say that she had this conviction that she shouldn't have done that, and she just, she said, and she said, well, I'm a Christian. Somebody said, well, it doesn't matter what, and let's say it was another situation. That, uh, let's say the uh, head of nursing said, well, we can't reschedule you, so you know, everybody does this. You're not responsible for that. You just work for the hospital. Uh, and Lynn said, well, and she said, well, I can't do it. She said, well, then you're gonna lose your job. And how about if Lynn then backed down? So, well, I don't want to lose my job. And so she did it against her conscience. Now, read that verse. For whosoever desires to save her job in the operating room, <laughs> save her life, will end up losing it in the long run. Whosoever loses his life, willing to pay whatever it is, even ultimately the cost of death, (coughs) for my sake, will save it. And Jesus is our model. When he wouldn't compromise, they brought him to be crucified. He had to face the cross. At that moment, he could have denied everything. He said, oh, I was just kidding. I wasn't that serious. (laughs) No sense of taking the thing this far. He could have backed down, couldn't he, facing the cross. But he didn't. Was he tempted to? Yeah, he was in the garden, remember? He was tempted in every point, just like we are. And he was tempted, but guess what? He could have backed down, but he didn't. How about if he would have saved his life? How about if he had it backed down? Guess what he would have done? Ultimately lost his life. Okay. <laughs> so, he faces the cross. He doesn't cower. He doesn't Back down. He doesn't plead for his life. Instead, by faith, he says, Lord, you said you'd raise me. I'm trusting you. He lays down his life for the cause of the kingdom. And God honors his faith and he raises him from the dead. Now that's our model. That's what we're called to do. Now look at verse 25. Verse 25. Now Jesus asked a question, a probing question. For those who have doubts. What, For what profit is it to a man, to a person, if he gains the whole world, meaning through compromise, through manipulation, through force, by playing the game, working the system? What profit is it for a person if he gains the whole world and he Himself is destroyed and lost. What's the profit? Absolutely zero. You haven't gained a thing. Notice Jesus puts it in economic terms, profit and loss. Something that we can understand. You think you've gained, but guess right, what? In the end, you will be destroyed at the judgment. He's talking about eternal things here. He's talking about judgment. Judgment. So by not compromising, we might lose our life, but in the end we will gain it because God will raise us from the dead.
1: <clears throat>
0: if you compromise and you deny Christ to save your own skin in the end, you'll be judged and you'll be destroyed. That's basically Jesus' message right here. Now look at verse 26. For whosoever is ashamed of me. See, this is, this is why I say it's in relationship to Christ. In those situations, when you have a chance to say something or stand for Christ and you don't because you're ashamed to be identified with him. Whosoever is ashamed of me and my words, which means the gospel, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and in his Father's and of the Holy Spirit. Angels. That's the second coming when he sets up the kingdom of God. Notice how we act now relates to the future. If we are ashamed now, in this life, in the future, at the judgment, when Christ comes to set up the kingdom, he will be ashamed of us. If we deny him now, he'll deny us then. You say, well, that sort of sounds like works almost. No, it's not works. If you deny him now, that proves you don't have saving faith. You had a little spark at the beginning. You walked in awe, but you never followed through. You didn't have persevering faith, you had denying faith. You denied Christ. And that proves that you didn't have saving faith at all. So depending on how we, if you want to be a follower of Christ, guess what? You must do. Not an option you must deny yourself. You must carry that crossbar of death every single day. Not once, every single day of your life be willing to die for Christ and then perseveringly follow him. If you do that, when he comes, everything is fine. But let's don't just talk about the future kingdom when he comes back with the angels and in the glory of the Father. Look at verse 27. But, now he's going to give us a contrast. He's going to talk about right now. Look at this. But I tell you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. There are some that are standing right there with him. Now, who are standing with him right now? The 12 apostles. So from the 12, he says, there are some standing here right now who will get a glimpse of the kingdom before they die. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, let's look at it. Look at verse 26. Notice he says, standing here. Now, that refers to Allen Street. That refers to the twelve, right? There are some, look, standing right here with Jesus. That's the twelve. Okay? Not us. That's the twelve. Now look at the word right before standing here. Look at the word some. Do you see that? There are some standing here. Not all. All would be twelve. Okay? Not many. That would be nine or ten. Right, okay. not most that would be six or seven how many some so now watch, watch what he says there are some that would be less than many and less than most who are standing here some among the twelve look at verse 27 shall not taste death There will be some that won't taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? You want to talk about a confusing statement? You mean there are going to be some of the original apostles who won't die before they see the kingdom of God? That's exactly what Jesus said. Now, what in the world did he mean by that? (laughs) Well, there are all kinds of theories. Some people say, well, Jesus was actually talking about the second coming and setting up the kingdom. But if that's what he meant... I don't think it could mean that, because guess what? He hasn't come yet. It's been 2,000 years and he hasn't come, and all 12 are dead. Every one of them is dead. We haven't seen, they're going to see the kingdom when we see it. Right? So can't be referring to the second coming. Some people think that he's referring to the resurrection, when he's raised from the dead and God gives him authority, and they see Jesus in his glory. But it can't, he can't be referring to that event either. That can't be the kingdom that he's talking about because most of them saw that. (coughs) Uh, Except for one, Judas. He didn't say most, he said some. So it can't be referring to that. Some people say it's Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and Jesus sort of returned in the presence of the church through the power of the Holy Spirit. Can't be that, they all saw that except one. Can't be that. Some people say he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and I've tried to figure that whole thing out, but there were more than some that were alive in 70 AD. Most of them were still alive. Peter had been put to death, but in 70 AD, most of them were alive. So I'm convinced that what he's talking about is the transfiguration. Now listen very carefully. Remember when he was on a mountain, he was transfigured? Huh? Huh? I believe that's, and when he was transfigured, they got a glimpse of his glory, and they saw what the kingdom of God was going to be like. They got a look into the kingdom of God. Now, why do I believe that? First of all, the context. Look at the next verse, verse 28. It came to pass, and about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter, James, and John, he went up to the mountain, and as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. He was transfigured before him, his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men walked with him who were Moses and Elijah. So right here we have the context. Within eight days this happens. Second of all, I want you to notice that those who were involved in this, in verse 28, there was Peter, James, and John. How many is that? Three. Is that some? That's some. And what happened? The transfiguration, and in verse 30... They saw Moses and Elijah, which was an example of Old Testament saints who were raised from the dead. So I think that what he's talking about here is he's talking about the transfiguration that is a precursor. They get a glimpse into the kingdom of God. How many get a glimpse into it? Only three. Only three. The rest go on and they die. And they won't see the kingdom until the day we see the kingdom. So how many have seen the kingdom? Three. How about the other nine? Well, they'll see it when we see it. When they're raised from the dead, just like we are. So I believe that that's what Jesus is talking about. And what we'll do next week is we'll look at this transfiguration and we will go into it in detail and we'll see how the transfiguration is a glimpse or a picture into what the kingdom of God is to be like and what we can anticipate. So we'll pick up there next week. Father, we thank you for this passage of scripture. Help us to realize that being a Christian is more than making a profession of faith. It's a lifelong endeavor, following Jesus' example for our lives, facing death daily, but with the assurance that we have life eternal.
1: Because we have not backed down, we've stood up for the cause of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you.